Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Entangling Vines, Case 46, Part 4, Daies Mu. Daie Soko said, just work diligently on Joshu's Mu. Sometimes we might think, oh, I come to this place to sit on the cushion. And then whatever idea you want to put to it, I'll become a better person. I shall get awakened. I will pass move or whatever. Maybe I can suffer a little more. I don't suffer enough in my life, so I have to come here. But all of those ideas are fine, as long as we don't attach to them. You know, have you ever taken the point of view or the point of manifestation of the seat that you're sitting in? It is us who sit in these seats who are temporarily given the responsibility to use it, to use it as a place to look deeply into this human condition, into this human condition, into this society that we live in, those crazy times, and to not turn it into a place into which retreat, to feel safe from all of that that hits us in the face as soon as we leave and open the door. So that's not why. We are the caretakers of these seats. Our buttocks have received the responsibility to do something more than just feel bad being on the cushion. Generally, I don't like to speak about making things better for the world, but this is what we are doing here. We are saving all sentient beings by sitting here. I can tell you, I sat sometimes on the cushion and I saved the sentient beings, just not having my stinky self out in the world and do harm. So even that is already saving sentient beings. There is nothing really so lofty about that we can't do it. Otherwise, we would not have a practice like this that has persisted 
for thousands and thousands of years. So consider yourself being charged rent by the universe as soon as you park yourself on the cushion. Responsibility comes with it. And we have to live up to it in different ways, in different functions, as different people, as different human beings. And what is hard to understand sometimes is that we are called to live that, but not in the way that the person or the persons who have taught us did it. That would be pure imitation. There is no place for imitation life in Zen practice. You want people, you want to see people imitate life, step outside. Sometimes it's sad to see how stories are enacted and how far individuals at times get away from just being who they are. So 54 years from the point of view of the cushions and this place is just the tip of this huge unseen fungal growth that is underneath. And you might sit there and nothing might happen on the surface. I hope do we have a biologist here? You could tell us, yeah, only slime mold, yeah, but not the fungi. The mycelium grows unseen under the earth. There is one structure, I think, in Washington state that is considered the largest one living entity. And it's a huge fungal growth that only here and there pops its, head, its heads out into the world. Well, that's us. And while we sit here, even if we may suffer or ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Or even worse, I'm doing so well. It still provides that undergrowth, the ability to develop very quietly. There is nothing sensational about it. Well, if you read the three pillars of Zen, which was the book many years ago, it seems like you have to have at least a seizure or cramps or something like that in order to be certified for having had an authentic experience. No, there's no theater here. There is nothing that is necessarily revolutionary. This evolution, the constant working on it, one drop at a time, is manifest in this building, in this Zen study society, in the fact that you have parked your buttocks here. So, will it be perfect? 
we like to look back sometimes and say, well, we are flawed as human beings, and indeed, we all are. We make mistakes. But what we do after we make a mistake is really important. Let's not make the same mistakes over and over. Let's make new mistakes. And when we make a mistake, you know, the only thing that we can do is we have to bring it to some kind of completion. Just failing is not enough. We have to fail completely. It's a very hard thing to really want to do. Who wants to fail completely? We have all these things that we drape in front of the portions of our spiritual body that we don't want to be seen. No, all of it has to drop. And four years ago, at the 50th anniversary, here in this very place, we gave a name to the Garden Zendo. We named it Koindo, the Hall of Light and Shadow. Just to remind ourselves that the Sangha, the atonement, the purification that we chant every morning is an acknowledgement of our imperfection. It's okay to be imperfect. As I said today in the officers meeting, if we did everything perfect, the world would end. There would be nothing more to do. No more days to be experienced. So I very, very strongly hope that we continue making mistakes with the right attitude. All right. So much for the acknowledgement of these 54 years. Today, it's the fourth installment of the koan mu. This is like layaway, you know, where you get mu dished out in, in, in installments. It feels like that. It's kind of in the beginning when I looked at this, how can I, this is number four, there are two more. How, how, what can I do with this time? And there's plenty of opportunity. My ordination teacher, Kyozan Joshuroshi, he talked about the opening of that corn, not just a week, but the whole kese, four seven-day sessions, and didn't get any further than the first line. That just shows that this is not about explanations. This is not about imparting you with the secret knowledge of the tradition or anything like that. There's a little history in there, but all it is, Teso, what it should be and what we aspire to do is 
to be the breeze that blows onto that glow, the glowing kernel of life within each of us to make it light up, get hot, burst out in flames and do its job of incinerating all the bullshit we, care, we carry around. Edo Roshi called the Zendo a spiritual bullshit incinerator. So have at it. We have plenty of BS. We don't have to look for others to provide it to us, even though that might be very inviting. Yeah. So today we meet Daie Soko. Daie Soko seems like, well, we don't really hear a lot about this person, but you might remember that he is one of the instrumental teachers in the Rinzai tradition, mainly because all the koan practice that we are doing, and that is historically since him, one of the main teaching methods in the Rinzai school originates with him, one of those. So when did he live? 1089 until 1163. Part of it, Teisho, is telling you about this ancestry. So that's why I will say a few words about Daie Soko. He was born in Xuancheng, in present-day Anhui province. His family name was Xi. He left home at the age of 16 and entered the temple that in Japanese is pronounced Eonji, a temple on a mountain called Dong. He was ordained the following year, so at the age of 17. From early on, he had read the writings or the, what was written down about Ummon Bunen Zenji, Ummon Bunen Zenji's extensive record of Ummon. And he had this special, he felt drawn to the teachings of Ummon. Ummon Bunen, he lived in the ninth century, so a couple of generations away. First, Daie studied under some Soto masters, but later he actually followed the advice of his dying Soto teachers to go and see Engo Kokugon. You might remember Engo Kokugon as the one who gave us the Blue Cliff record as we know it nowadays, the Hekigan Roku. Engo Kokugon. One day, during a lecture, Engo said, and this is case 92, I think, of the Shumon Katoshu. He, he, he said, a monk asked Umon, what is the place from which all Buddhas come? Umon answered, east mountain walks on water. 
Ingo said. But if I were asked the same question, I would simply say, a fragrant breeze comes from the south, and in the palace, a refreshing coolness stirs. Hearing these words, Daie awakened. Eventually, he became Uman's Dharma heir. Uh, not Uman. Who is it? Who knows? Engo's Dharma heir. Engo Kogugon's Dharma heir. And became the master of the monastery. He got all kinds of titles and robes. What happened next is the churches came and invaded Song China. There was a lot of fighting. Daie ran into the south with Engo and hid there for some time. Then he returned to the north. He was actually stripped of his robes by the government because he encouraged resistance against those churches uh, of the northern Song dynasty. Later, when the emperor came back, he was forgiven and so on. But he drew always a lot, a lot of students. The last count, even after he came back from having been laicized, he spent first he spent a couple of years just with the regular people that had gone through a pandemic, a pandemic that killed half of his students and half of the whole populace. He was called back to teach, but he stayed for several years to help the people get their footing back. But when he returned, he had 1,700 students. When he died in 1163, he had left 94 Dharma heirs. Seems like a very fruitful kind of person. Let me read you one of the things that Dyer wrote. If people who study transcendent wisdom abandon this expedience and go along with passions, they will certainly be controlled by the demons of delusion. And while yielding to sense objects to impose theories and say that affliction is itself enlightenment, and ignorance is itself great wisdom. Acting in these terms of existence with every step while take, talking of emptiness with each breath, without admonishing oneself for being dragged along by the power of habitual action to go on and teach others to deny cause and effect, the vicious poison of misguided delusion has entered the guts of people who act like this. They want to escape from passion, but it is like trying to put out the fire by pouring on oil. Are they not to be pitied? Only having penetrated through, can you say that affliction is itself 
enlightenment. And ignorance is identical to great wisdom. Within the wondrous heart of the original, vast quiescence, which is pure, clear, perfect illumination, there is not a single thing that can cause obstruction. It is like the emptiness of space. Even the word Buddha is alien to it. To say nothing of there still being passions or afflictions as the opposite. This affair is like the bright sun in the blue sky, shining clearly, changeless and motionless, without diminishing or increasing. It shines everywhere in the daily activities of everyone, appearing in everything. Though you try to grasp it, you cannot get it. Though you try to abandon it, it always remains. It is vast and unobstructed, utterly empty, like a gourd floating on water. It cannot be reined in or held down. Since ancient times, since when good people of the path have attained this, they have appeared and disappeared in the sea of birth and death, able to use it fully. There is no deficit or surplus. Like cutting up sandalwood, each piece is it. This is, in other words, what I pointed ourselves to sitting on these cushions. Let's not pursue these ideas, agendas, stories. Let's just be there so that the striving for something else does not pull us away from being here, from being here who we are with all of our imperfections. And then thinking, oh, yes, I understood this, and going around and, and, and talking about Zen here and there. My ordination teacher said, that is like a person who is blind, who goes somewhere and, and pisses all over the place and doesn't know that he's pissing on people's feet. On the other hand, there are people out there with cold feet and they go, ah, oh, this is nice. <laughs> so everything has its function too, but not buying into any of that when we sit down on the cushion facing what faces us and there we go whatever we do just work diligently on joshu's move daie soko started to look at koans a little different than his teacher, Engo Kokugon. You know, when you read the Blue Cliff record, there is a pointer. It's like an introduction. And now look at this. Then comes the main case. Then comes a commentary and a verse. Daie looked at it from the point of Watto, 
the word head, find the core of the koan, and become completely one with that core of the koan. And of course, Mu is such a prime candidate for that. During anniversary session, I, I spoke a little bit about it, but let me just repeat it because it is worthwhile repeating. Mu and this kind of treatment of koans, the Dharmakaya koans, Hoshin koans, I call them, I came to the understanding, maybe it's a good way to express this as an immersion koan. An immersion koan where we immerse ourselves completely in that koan and every breath, every movement that we make is that koan, is that wato, that one thing. It could be the syllable mu, but it, it is that quality of really boring into it with all of our being. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. And it can be. Don't do it when you're just about to cross the street. Even if you are in samadhi with mu, the bus will win. And that is not practical. <laughs> yes. So when we have an opportunity, like here, the bell rings, then it's a free fall until the bell rings again. We can really drop into that koan completely. There's no danger, no buses. Completely into it. Immersing ourselves. And immersing in the koan brings with it a very interesting follow-up metaphor. What happens to the self if we immerse ourselves in a koan like that? It dissolves. It completely dissolves. And the interesting thing is, even though it dissolves, if you look at yourself, this I am self, as some rock candy on a stick, you know rock candy, right? And you put it into the right hot water and you immerse it long enough, what will happen? It dissolves. Yet at the same time, the water that what we immerse in takes on even the color of the drug candy. So all the conditions of that self that has arisen are still in the taste of that water. And when the water evaporates, a new rock candy can form. Crystals, completely different than before, but still the same self evolved after its dissolution. And what dissolves with it at the same time are all the questions. All the questions, because it dissolves in the solution itself. Dissolution in the solution, without the fear that it will completely vanish. I know sometimes it's instinctual when we sit and we get close to this really 
everything falling off, this Shinjin Datsuraku, as it is called in the Soto school, the falling away of body and mind, that complete light lights out situation where there's nobody to see and nothing to be seen, there is hesitation. There is hesitation and great fear. But become rock candy. Let yourself dissolve in koans like this. And don't get stuck in understanding of it. Mu is one of those corns. And if it is not Mu, we can still use that same dedication and quality of application to our own lives in whatever faces us. Whatever faces us here on the cushion. Sometimes it's ourselves. And we learn to not get swept away by it. It's very interesting to observe it. But even the observation is not enough. Even if we don't judge, we don't want to become spiritual couch potatoes flipping through the channels of the self that is playing in front on the TV and think, oh, <laughs> this is just two-dimensional. That's also not enough. That's a stage, stage in this development. And I suppose language and translation of the Buddhist teachings has kind of fed into this a little bit by telling people attachment is bad. And what is the opposite of attachment? Oh, we have to be detached. Nothing could be further away from this practice and the practice of the Buddha. So before I remind you of how attachment can be expressed, please feel free to move. And some of you will think, ah, I know what's coming. That's okay. Good. I like to look at attachment from the point of view of relationship. Just saying attachment is bad. How, how could I pick up this fan without attaching to it? It is not possible. And when it's time to have the ceremony and I pick up the fan. This is relationship that I make. And it is the appropriate relationship at the time. However, when the ceremony is over and I refuse to let go of this here, ah, then it turns into what I would call attachment. This is one hand. And then there's the other hand. Ah. If I attach to that and the relationship comes to arrest, 
now I can't even wipe myself in the bathroom anymore unless I use the fan, right? Most inappropriate. That would make for interesting ceremonies, I suppose. So how do we move on from here? We have to see and learn to feel where are these places of arrested development. And I can deny that these items are held by my hands and go through my life. and I wouldn't do very well. But facing it and bringing the relationship to its completion. <sighs> Thank you, Plate. You really served me well. I let you go now. The relationship is completed. Thank you, Fan. It's not hot anymore. The ceremony is over. It's not detached. It is a relationship brought to its completion. No matter what it was, by being brought to completion, you know what it becomes? Perfect. Just as it was. Perfect is also the name for the time of that what's over. It is perfect. It is done. It cannot be changed. But we can bring it to completion, and completion only can happen in presence, in being present, and in fully giving ourselves to this present, which is also a gift of a present. So not detaching, but facing and embracing what it is, is what we learn over time and we get into it deeper and deeper. There's always one gets to a place that one thinks, ah, I've got it. Danger, danger, danger. That's also a static place in our practice. And it's not just us. I mean, let's think of Hakuin, the reformer of this koan system, the great reviver of Rinzai Zen in Japan. Remember, he lived about the same time as Johann Sebastian Bach. 1685, Bach was born. Almost the same year. Hakuin lived a little longer. Bach died in 1750. Hakuin lived, I think, until 1758. At the same time. So Hakuin here, I want to read this to you from his biography, Wild Ivy, which I of course, recommend to everybody to read eventually. And what happened to him when he had, you know, he had this experience from the temple bell where he understood or meant that he understood what Mu is. And he went out and he went to meet Shoju Rojin, Shoju, the old man. And this temple has a relationship to that place where Shoju was. 
Shoujuan in Iyama in Japan. Genpo Roshi tried to revive it. Genpo Roshi was the teacher of Soen Roshi, who was the teacher of Edo Roshi, who was the teacher of Shinge Roshi. So there's this relationship to Shoujuan in Iyama. At the same time, Joshu Roshi was the last, his last position before he came to America was being the abbot of Shoujuan in Iyama. So here's Hakuin. He was pretty full of himself, as we all are sometimes. He says, he went with a couple of people, followers of the way his uh, comrades, they were told, go to this old man, Shoju Rojin. So he says, when we arrived at the Shojuan Hermitage, I received permission to be admitted as a student. Then I hung up my traveling staff to stay. Once after I had forth my understanding to the master during Doksa, he said to me, commitment to the study of Zen must be genuine. How do you understand the koan about the dog and the Buddha nature? Hakuin said, no way to lay a hand or foot on that. I replied, Shoju abruptly reached out and caught my nose, giving it a sharp push with his hand. He said, got a pretty good hand on it there. I couldn't make a single move, either forward or backward. I was unable to spit out a single syllable. That encounter put me into a very troubled state. I was totally frustrated and demoralized. I sat red-eyed and miserable, my cheeks burning from the constant tears. The master took pity on me and assigned me some koans to work on. The memorial tower. The water buffalo comes through a window. Nonsense death. Nonsense cat. The hemp rope. Umon's shit stick. Anyone who gets past one of these fully deserves to be called a descendant of the Buddhas and patriarchs, he said. A great surge of spirit rose up inside me, stiffening my resolve. I chewed on these corns day and night, attacking them from the front, gnawing at them from the sides. But not the first glimmer of understanding came. Tearful and dejected, I sobbed out a vow. I call upon the evil kings of the ten directions as all the other leaders of the heavenly hosts of demons. If after seven days I fail to bore through one of these koans, come quickly and snatch my life away. So he was trying to escape. I lit some incense, made my bows, and resumed my practice. I kept at it without stopping for even a moment of sleep. The master came and spewed abuse at me. You're doing Zen down in a hole, he barked. Then he told me, you could go out today and scour the entire world looking for a true teacher, someone who could revive the fortunes of closed barrier Zen. You'd have a better chance finding stars in the midday skies. 
I had my doubts about that. After all, I reasoned, there are great monasteries all over the country that are filled with celebrated masters. They are as numerous as sesame or flax seeds. That old man in his wretched ramshackle old poorhouse of a temple and that preposterous pride of his, I'd be better off leaving here and going somewhere else. Early the next morning, still deeply dejected, I picked up my begging bowl and went into the village below Iyama Castle. I was totally absorbed in my koan. Never a wave, even for an instant. I took up a position besides the gate of a house, my begging bowl in my hand, fixed in some sort of a trance. From inside the house, a voice emerged. Get away from here. Go somewhere else. I was so preoccupied, I didn't even hear it. This must have angered the occupant, because suddenly she appeared, flourishing a broom upside down in her hands. She flew at me, flailing wildly, whacking away at my head, as if she were bent on dashing my brains out. My sedge hat lay in tatters. I was knocked over and ended heels up on the ground, totally unconscious. I lay there like a dead man. Neighbors, alarmed by the commotion, emerged from their houses with looks of concern on their faces. Oh my, what has she done now? It became very still. I was knocked over. I lay there. A few people who happened to pass by approached me in wonderment. They grabbed hold of me and hoisted me upright. What's wrong with you? What happened, they exclaimed. As I came to and my eyes opened, I found that the unsolvable and impenetrable koans I had been working on were gone, penetrated completely, right to their roots. They had suddenly ceased to exist. I began clapping my hands and whooping with glee, frightening the people who had gathered around me. He has lost his mind. A crazy monk, they shouted, shrinking back for me apprehensively. Then they turned heel and fled without looking back. I picked myself up from the ground. I straightened my robe and fixed the remnants of my hat back on my head. With a blissful smile on my face, I started slowly and exultantly making my way back towards Narasava and the Shojuan. I spotted an old man beckoning to me. Honorable priest, he said. That old lady really put you out, didn't she? I smiled faintly, but uttered not a word in response. He fed me a bowl of rice and sent me on my way. I reached the gate of Shoju's hermitage with a broad grin on my face. The master was standing on the veranda. He took one look at me and said, 
something good has happened to you. Try to tell me about it. I walked up to where he was standing and proceeded to explain at some length about the realization I had experienced. He took his fan and stroked my back with it. I sincerely hope, he said, you live to be my age. You must firmly resolve your will. Never be satisfied with trifling gains. How much of yourself, how much of ourselves can we see in this behavior? But also how much of ourselves can we give to have that same courage to be, to bore into this, what meets us here in Zazen, in the same way that Hakuin went into these koans. If it stares at you, realize Zazen presents you with a mirror, a mirror to see clearly and undistorted. We might be frightened by the difference to the ideal image that we would like the mirror to show. But alas, we are who we are. We have to embrace who we are before we can go on and save all sentient beings. From the point of view of an I am self, this seems, it doesn't sound right. But that is just because it is the self that is thinking that way. Fifty-four years. The flame is ours. Each of us carries that flame. Like the Olympic fire. It's just our relay is a little longer. And we might not know who we give it to. Next. I encourage you to participate in spiritual arson. Take that flame and see how we can make this a lighter place. As we have been shown by Daisoku, by Hakuin, Genpo Roshi, Soen Roshi, Edo Roshi, all the departed teachers, all the living teachers. And you. I don't know if you know Soko Morinaga, 
Morinaga Sokoroshi. I think he was a successor to Goto Zuigan, Goto Zuigan Roshi. And he used to start his talks at the university. He gave a talk at the university to young male students and they had a talk before, so there was just a little time. And the first thing that he said, did you have enough time to go and piss? And of course, everybody was laughing. But from there, he proceeded to tell people, you know, Zen practice is exactly the same way. You can't ask me to go and take a leak for you. Zen practice is what each of us has to do ourselves. And at times, you will feel an urgency that is even greater than the absence of a bathroom. to another 54 years. Even if we get together here, toothless, in a wheelchair, on a respirator, the flame is still on. So let's do it all together. That's how it persisted. That's how life and the light of the Buddha, the light of humanity, goes on. It is our responsibility. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.